as you're watching the feature film Selma, you know, you, you find yourself thinking, yeah, this is how it was. This is what it was like. And if you cared to, you could go back and watch the old, you know, TV news broadcasts and see how it was portrayed there or read about it in the newspapers of that time. And everything is matching up well. So uh, again, this is where I give her a, a tremendous amount of credit for obviously the research she did, but then also in shooting the film to really make it hew very closely to what we know from the documentary record. Look at a still photo from the actual event, then look at a still photo from her film. And not that they're gonna match up exactly, but they basically do in a, in a thematic and in a visual sense, this is what it was like. And, and that's quite an accomplishment to make you feel as a viewer that, that this is an event you knew about, but now on a visceral level and on an intellectual level, you know it better because of her film, Selma. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Ava DuVernay. And we are bringing her up because we're going to be doing a whole series in the fall on women behind the camera. And Ava DuVernay is our feature director on October 14th. So Mike, we want to record what we can to let people know about her career so that by the time we come to October, everyone is ready to show up having seen some of her stuff. So where do you want to start with this very talented woman? I want to start with a personal observation. I actually met Ava DuVernay in 2015. She was speaking at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And of course, I was there, mostly student audience. And the reason I mention that is uh, during her remarks and during the Q&A, a lot of people are asking her about, you know, the industry. How do people of color get into the industry in greater numbers? And of course, oftentimes with a student audience, people want to be actors and directors and so on. And she said, you know what? The important thing is to have a place at the table. In other words, once you get into the film industry, at whatever level, whether you're a director, a screenwriter, you know, in marketing, whatever, just to get in the door, to get there. And we'll talk in, in more detail about her career and how that came along. But the fact that certainly with movies like Selma, she did arrive in terms of you know, commercial clout, in terms of Oscar recognition and so on. And an important aspect of her career has been to have herself there as director and, and, and producer and, and so on but also to encourage other people as she puts together film projects to get on the team. And then really just in general to make the film industry more inclusive. And to reinforce that point, for a while now, she's been actually a member of, of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the, the parent organization for the Oscars, for the Academy Awards. Two years ago, she was named as one of the governors, the board of governors for that organization. The difference is this, you know, if you belong to it, yeah, you get to vote in, in your category and so on. It's a great honor just to be part of the, the, the voting membership. But when you're on the board of governors, you are setting policy. And this is coinciding, not coincidentally at all, with the fact that in the last few years, the Oscars have become more inclusive in terms of the overall membership, the, the number of members, voting members, and also in terms of race and gender and so on, making the uh, Academy membership look more like America, to put it bluntly. And she has a lot had a lot to do with that. So I give her a lot of credit for working not just you know regularly as a director for film and television, and Ray and I'll talk about that, but the fact that in a larger sense, and because she has a background in marketing, among other things, she knows how to get ideas out there and to push them and to see them through. 
So the fact that she's actually part of the, the, the governing board for the Academy Awards, that's probably as significant, I think, as anything she's done. In other words, if you want to change the industry, have a place at the table and at the best table in the room, if you will. This is the table where things are decided. So let me hand it back to you, and then we can probably talk about her career a bit in terms of how she got to be where she is today. Well, the way I discovered her was a show called When They See Us, based on the 1989 Central Park Jogger case, because it was all over Netflix and everybody was talking about it. And it was a view of things I had never seen presented in this way. Now, that was very powerful. The movie we're going to discuss when we have our Friday night discussions in the fall is the movie Selma. Um, And going back to try to find out more about her, uh, she, uh, in terms of what she said about someone have a, a place at the table, someone to bring things to people's attention that have been uh, either hidden or ignored. Uh, one of the things I discovered was something she did about August 28th, the day in the life of a people, which uh, fascinatingly centers on the the passion, uh, the passing of the Slavery Abolition Act on August 28th, 1833 the lynching of Emmett Till on August 28, 1955, the first radio airplay from Motown Records on August 28, 1961, with the Marvelettes' Please, Mr. Postman, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech during the historic march on Washington, August 28, 1963, Hurricane Katrina making its tragic landfall on August 28, 2005, and then Senator Barack Obama's acceptance of the Democratic nomination for the presidency on the same day in 2008. Just to be able to pull all those things together, I had no idea that date was so significant. What an amazing thread and what a great idea to focus on all of those seemingly disparate events that all happened on the same day in different years. She is a very history-minded filmmaker. And as we talk about specific films, and of course, Selma, I think, is her her greatest achievement. But as we talk about various other films, many of them for television, the extent to which she really knows that history. So she's not just advocating a position by way of inclusion and equity and all that, but she's approaching it much as an historian would, if you will, with the knowledge she brings to the material. And she doesn't take on just any project. She has a, a definite I hate to use the word agenda because it's such a loaded word, but she does. She has a thematic agenda. She has things she wants to say in her career. Here's a curious thing about that career. She was not somebody who right out of the gate was a filmmaker. And and a lot of folks don't fully realize this. I mean, she's now 49 years old and she's been around a while. And by way of that background, she was blessed in some ways to be from California. It doesn't hurt to be from California. She graduated from UCLA in 1995, but not really majoring in film. I mean, she so early in her career, she worked as a journalist and had mixed feelings about that. She then actually went on very successfully to work in um, marketing and public relations. And that's why what I mentioned earlier was the fact that she knows how to sell uh, something. And again, I, I don't want to use that expression particularly because it sounds so crass, but she, you know, whether you're pitching a film to a producer or whether you're actually working on the film and getting it out to the public, to have a, a sense of, of awareness of what the marketplace is and how to get things made, how to get them distributed, she has that kind of savvy, actually. And that very, I think that very much plays to advantage. So she really wasn't you know, a filmmaker until she first picked up a camera at the age of 32. 
Now, in many careers, that wouldn't be, you know, particularly ancient, but in filmmaking, you know, that's a profession where oftentimes people by their early 20s, right, certainly in their 20s, pick up the camera or, or stand in front of it wherever they are in the film business. So to be in your early 30s before you not quite discover that, but actually put it in motion, she was already well along in life, let's put it that way, in her early 30s when she starts working. What's quite striking is in the 10 to 15 years after that, how prolific and how successful she's been, both in film and, and in television. So I think a lot of it, and I mean this as a compliment really, is because of that background in, in public relations and marketing, she has a good sense of, of how the world works. You know what I'm getting at? Like in terms of you know, how you can you know, package a product, how you can pull it all together, how you can get it out to the public. That's a skill set that I think translates or transfers quite readily from what she was doing in her 20s to then becoming a filmmaker in her 30s. What's your sense of that, Marie? Because the reason I, I want to hand it off at this point is when I actually you know, met her and, and listened to her with an audience, I thought she's really self-confident. She's really assured. She knows exactly who she is and what she wants to do. And she knows how to convey that to a larger public. And so it's not for me at all surprising that, you know, in a film industry where there are still very few female directors, much less black female directors, she would be among that select number. I mean, she would be in the vanguard that way because she really knows how to do it and how to get herself out there as a filmmaker. And quite honestly, you know, to now be on the board of governors for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, that's a very select table, if you will. And I think she's had great success. And just one final observation to underscore what I'm saying. In 2017, Time Magazine had a, a, what I call like the 100 list, like the, the, the 100, I'll call them movers and shakers, like, like the 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, and she was on that list. And I thought, my gosh, you know, that covers a lot of territory. And there she is on that, that Time Magazine list. So she's been on that cultural radar and really getting a lot of recognition. Now, Mike, I know you've, you've managed to avoid saying the word zeitgeist. But we almost have to bring it in here because one of the things Ava DuVernay does really well is to take a topic that you know just a little bit of something about and she digs under you know, the surface of what you know and makes the topics automatically interesting. So for example, you know, I mean, I knew about the Central Park jogger case and I knew that it went one way and then you know, later they found out the situation was was not how, how it was originally presented and it was something totally different so that gives it its own sort of momentum when you find out about it because before you know it's Ava DuVernay or you know that it's something maybe you should find out more about you're immediately interested in finding out what you don't know because you know you know just a little bit and then when she makes the movie 13th which is about the 13th amendment it's about the uh, incarceration of African-Americans in this country. So you know a little bit about the 13th Amendment. Obviously, you probably heard the word the 13th Amendment, but not enough to be any sort of expert. So you're immediately drawn in, and she's a trustworthy storyteller. So you're ready to follow her to find out more about something you don't know, which I think positions her as a wonderful guide for some of these stories that haven't been fully told. I love your observation for so many reasons, one of them being that uh, having taught courses on documentary filmmaking, I'm always making connections between fictional films and non-fictional films, namely that strong narrative impulse to tell a story 
and how and even though there is push come to shove a distinction between you know fiction and nonfiction, the fact that in nonfiction filmmaking you need some of the same skill set, don't you? You need the ability to present characters, to tell stories, to have a sense of narrative momentum, particularly when the outcome is a foregone conclusion. This is always a trick, whether in fiction or nonfiction. Like you know, if you have a major event that people already know about, in the telling of it, you have to make it seem like there's some degree of suspense, right? Like, how will this turn out? Will the Titanic sink or not? You have to you know, still somehow present that to an audience in a way where you can put aside the fact that you already know the outcome. When she's been dealing with a lot of African-American history from the 19th into the 20th century, you know, whether in documentary form or fictional form, when these are famous events that we're aware of, you still have to tell it in such a way that you put people back at that time, that place, make them really experience that and go through that and think about it. So a lot of her work for both television and feature films has been very carefully rooted. I mentioned earlier the degree of historical research she does, the fact that it's very well grounded. And Maria, I love the observations you were making about things like whether it's the Central Park Jogger case or or any number of other films you cited and TV shows you cited, that even when you know or think you know a bit about this, number one, there's more to know. I mean, enough humility on our part that we don't know everything about it. We're going to learn from this. But then secondly, even when it's something you're already familiar with, to really take you through it again in a way that gets your pulse going, right? That makes you really wonder what's going to happen next, even when ironically you do know what happens next. And that's, again, part of her talent as a filmmaker is the ability to craft the films there in, in the scripting and shooting. Now, of course, we're um, you know we're sort of circling the uh, the big movie event, which is what we're going to be discussing in the fall during the fall film discussions, which is the movie Selma. And again, you know, everybody's heard of Martin Luther King Jr. Everybody knows the "I Have a Dream" speech. Just enough when a movie like Selma comes out, you know a little bit, and so you're intrigued to find out more about what that's all about. Now, since that's going to be the focus of our examination of Ava DuVernay as a woman behind the camera, Mike, what do we want to tell people to look for, to notice, to ponder in terms of a discussion about that film? When uh, Ava DuVernay was speaking at Hopkins, she talked a lot about Selma because it had come out just the year before her appearance in Baltimore. And for her, one of the challenges was that because there was so much archival footage you know, of the march, of the, the protests there and the police response and so on. That's something that works for you, and I won't say against you, but it works for you in the sense that we have, a, there is a lot of actual archival, you know, news footage of those events and certainly still photographs and a lot of written journalism. So it's very well grounded that way. When she goes to do her research, she can draw on all that. Where it becomes a challenge is simply because she's now making a feature film treatment of this. And so when she thought about the most basic things about camera placement and editing and, and casting, of course, in terms of the principal roles, that she knows enough about the actual history that now in, in feature film style, she wants to do it justice. You know, and, and so that became the challenge there. The film is extremely well cast. And it calls attention, as it must, of course, to Martin Luther King Jr., but also to some of the other principal players, you know, who were some of the other civil rights leaders, uh, what was the overall situation. And the one thing she talked about at Hopkins that I found fascinating was in terms of, you know, the actual confrontations between protesters and police, that, you know, this is where the staging had to be spot on. This is where, as a director, in terms of your casting, in terms of blocking the action, how you shoot it, how you edit it, and those are some of the best aspects of the film itself. 
when you watch the confrontations, when you watch, you know, what we know from newsreel footage, if you will, or TV footage, when you watch the feature film treatment, it really does convince you. As you're watching the feature film Selma, you know, you, you find yourself thinking, yeah, this is how it was. This is what it was like. And if you cared to, you could go back and watch the old, you know, TV news broadcasts and see how it was portrayed there or read about it in the newspapers of that time. And everything is matching up well. So uh, again, this is where I give her a, a tremendous amount of credit for obviously the research she did, but then also in shooting the film to really make it hue very closely to what we know from the documentary record. Look at a still photo from the actual event, then look at a still photo from her film. And not that they're gonna match up exactly, but they basically do in a, in a thematic and in a visual sense. This is what it was like. And, and that's quite an accomplishment to make you feel as a viewer that, that this is an event you knew about, but now on a visceral level and on an intellectual level, you know it better because of her film, Selma. Now, Mike, we've talked in other shows about how you know, you make a movie that gets the Academy's attention. If you're even nominated for awards, suddenly like a whole new lane opens up in terms of what you're able to do afterwards. So Selma was nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Song. And then after that, she was offered to direct Black Panther, which she turned down. And I think Ryan Coogler did a great job. Now, Mike, do you think that that was a mistake for her to turn that down just in terms of elevating your profile, getting people to know who you are. I mean, I tend to think she has a sort of niche where she she takes on projects based on her idea of how well it will position her voice in terms of what she wants to say. So I don't know that it was a mistake artistically to turn down Black Panther, but in terms of, you know, your rising star and making the most of it, what do you think? Well, you know, again, to underscore something you were talking about, you know, the fact that Selma was nominated for Best Picture. She was the first Black woman to, to you know, have a, a picture nominated like that for, for Best Picture. So that added to all the recognition she was getting. In other words, she was in the driver's seat, I would say, in terms of when producers and agents and so on, when they come calling and, and offering things. So it was not surprising that she would be offered Black Panther. I mean, she was very much on the ascendant at that point. What I have never entirely understood, when she turned down Black Panther, I read interviews with her at the time and since then where she mentioned the usual creative differences and this and that. So she wasn't seeing eye to eye with the producers as to what she wanted to do with it. But what I'm not entirely sure of is, well, how would it have been if she had made it? And that's where I think it's a little hazier in terms of what she would have done with the material. Was it a mistake to turn it down? That's a great question. I mean, Black Panther became such a cultural phenomenon, I think it would have been to her credit to have done the film and to enter into, you know, a superhero realm. Not that she has to remain there, but the fact that, you know, she's developing as a director and, you know, a few feature films behind her at that point. Why not? So, again, I don't entirely understand her reasons for turning it down, but I respect them in that, you know, once she turned it down, she thought that the film that was produced, you know, what was good, you know, that it turned out well, maybe not quite what she would have done with it. That's a matter of speculation. But the fact that what I find really quite impressive is the fact that she was offered something like that. It was her choice not to do it. And then she certainly worked on, on worthwhile projects since then. Marie, what's your sense of, of her, her rationale for turning it down? Because again, I've read interviews where uh, I think she's being maybe diplomatic in some ways. You know, when, when you see somebody referring to, you know, quote unquote, creative differences, as to exactly what happened or didn't happen there. But something something didn't pan out from her perspective. She said no to it ultimately. You know, I, 
I can see it going two different ways. And, you know, I'm never going to take anything away from Ryan Coogler working on it because I think he's just an amazing talent. But it would have been interesting to see what her take on that particular world was if they had let her, because I don't know how much she was held back by what was required to make, you know, that iconic superhero kind of movie where people had all these expectations. What she ended up doing instead was A Wrinkle in Time, which I think was, you know, like the different, you know, you come to the fork in the road, you're going to make Black Panther, you're going to make A Wrinkle in Time. I mean, A Wrinkle in Time is a, a book that's been famous forever. Lots and lots and lots of generations of, of people have read that book and loved it. So I can see why she wanted to do that one. Given the way it just turned out to be a just okay movie, I mean, I almost feel like anybody could have directed that. It didn't have to be Ava DuVernay. And it would have been interesting to see the stamp she might have made on Black Panther. Mike, what do you think in terms of Wrinkle in Time? There was a lot of anticipation when she was announced as the director of Wrinkle in Time, which came out in 2018. There's a novel, as Marie mentions, that's very well known. There's a cast, including everyone from Reese Witherspoon to, uh, to Oprah Winfrey to Chris Pine. I mean, it's got name actors in it, certainly. It had a huge budget. The results, it ended up with mixed reviews, and I, I had mixed to negative response to it. My complaint, my major complaint, was shared by a lot of people, namely that the film which is jumping around in time and space. It's very much a sci-fi. It's every bit as much a sci-fi film as Black Panther. You know, I mean, different storyline, but, you know, in the same genre, if you will. The way it jumps around in space and time, it's extremely reliant on CGI effects. And I thought too many. And it was like a relentless barrage of special effects. And some of them just didn't make sense in terms of narrative logic, basic storytelling. Some of it was just like, sort of like, well, that's weird. You know, you see some special effect. Well, that's interesting. Why is it there? What's it about? I almost felt like the project got out of control or somehow it's like, sometimes a big budget is not a good thing. I just felt like maybe it just sort of went all over the place and the film was kind of a mess in some ways. And the reason I felt all the more disappointed was, gosh, not only that she could have done Black Panther, but whatever she did next, she got the ticket, she got the invitation to make a really big budget sci-fi film. You know, having turned down Black Panther, here's another shot at it. And it just doesn't quite work. I, I love the way Marie say it's just okay, because it is. Parts of it are quite interesting and there, there's some things to be said for it, but it's just sort of an, a so-so film. It's not a particularly strong film otherwise. And what really kind of hurts is the fact that even though it, it took in over $100 million at the box office, it cost a lot more than that to make it. And the film ended up losing money. And that's one thing they, they understand very keenly in Hollywood. The fact that when she had her shot at a really big budget sci-fi film, it just didn't quite pan out critically or commercially. To her credit, yeah, that she took on an ambitious film and for whatever reason, at least from my perspective, didn't quite work, didn't really stop her. Some careers could have been like ended or seriously derailed at that point, but not, not for her necessarily. She hasn't made perhaps as many feature films as she might based on the disappointing outcome for Wrinkle in Time. But you know what? She's done really good work in television. She's done good work in, in other media. She's just kept working. And she has all sorts of projects that have been announced and in some stage of development. She hasn't stopped and she hasn't even slowed down at all. So even though in most careers, Wrinkle in Time would have been a definite setback, I don't think, frankly, it set her back as much as it, it would have uh, a number of other uh, directors. What do you think there? Because I, I just noticed that, you know, after that sort of disappointed all of us, it didn't really stop her. She kept going with various other projects. I do think it's interesting the way she seems to pick projects 
for her own reasons, whether they're going to be commercially successful or not. And I can only imagine she decided to do A Wrinkle in Time because she probably read it when she was younger and wanted to be associated with it in the same way that a lot of actors end up doing kids movies because they end up having kids and they want to be in a movie that their child is excited about seeing. The disappointment is that A Wrinkle in Time was not innovative enough to revive her back catalog. Because if you go looking up Ava DuVernay, some things are easy to find, you know, the, the shows that Netflix has picked up, for example. But, you know, when you read about something that she's done, like I Will Follow, which is about a woman who is passing and 12 individuals that in her life that she is interacting with before this happens. It's a great premise. It's interesting when you read about it. And then when you go to try to find it, you can't find it anywhere. Or you look up, you know, the movie about August 28th, The Day in the Life. It's very difficult to actually find the movie itself. You can find people talking about the making of it that just sort of piques your interest about being able to see it. But you can't actually find a lot of this other stuff that she's done. What does bubble to the top, of course, is Selma. So since that is sort of the gleaming jewel in the crown, Mike, since we're coming up to our last couple of minutes, what else do you want to say about Selma to encourage people who haven't seen it to watch it and to join us in the fall for our uh, series on women behind the camera? Well, you know, as you think about the civil rights movement and certainly Martin Luther King, watching this film Selma is itself a great history lesson. I mean, as I say, it's extremely well cast. It's just really well shot. It's well thought out. And so, you know, this film came out in 2014 and, you know, critically and commercially did extremely well. And people still oftentimes will mention it, you know. And so I would say in Ava DuVernay's career, it is the, the highlight. As Marie mentioned, some of her other films, ironically, even though she's an expert on marketing and this and that, when you look at her career, you know, she's worked for various networks and films made under various conditions. And certainly with documentary films, not always as easy to find them for various reasons. And so it can be a bit frustrating there to try to track down some of what we're calling the back catalog. But with the, the major feature films that she's worked on, and it's really just a handful, Selma clearly is the choice. And that's why honestly, why we chose it for the fall film series, Women Behind the Camera. Because if you want to talk about Ava DuVernay as a director, that is her best known and, and certainly her best film. And so that's the one really to focus on there. And then if you're interested in her beyond that, and hopefully you are, yeah, it could be a little frustrating to track down some of the films, but at least have a sense of how it fits within that overall career for someone who really is an impressive filmmaker who's done a lot since she first picked up a camera at the age of 32. She's done a lot in the last 15 years that, that is really notable. So just to give our listeners an idea of what's coming in the fall, we are doing a series on women behind the camera, which starts on September 9th. So all of the discussions are on Fridays at 7 o'clock. And we're going to be discussing Dorothy Arzner, Julie Dash, Jane Campion, Mira Nair, Barbara Streisand, Ava DuVernay, which is October 14th, Chloe Zhao, Kelly Reichert, Catherine Bigelow, Agnesia Holland, and Rebecca Hall. So for more information about that series, go to howardcc.edu forward slash film festivals for a complete lineup of what we're going to be discussing and when, and to sign up to join us for those discussions in the fall. And that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. 
and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.